As we begin to change the climate and rainfall patterns change both excessively, as you can see in Kentucky, or become much drier, uh, these headwater systems um, are going to be among the first harbingers of change. Welcome to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Growing Impact explores cutting-edge projects of researchers and scientists who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues. Each project has been funded through an innovative seed grant program that's facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Sliman. On this episode of Growing Impact, I speak with Andy Cole, a professor of landscape architecture and ecology and the director of the Ecology Plus Design Program. He's a wetland ecologist by training with a wildlife biology background. His research interests lie with restoration ecology as it applies to damaged landscapes, usually wetlands. His Sea Grant project titled Wetland Hydrology and Plant Community Composition, a reassessment of site conditions a decade later, looks to reinstall instruments on wetland sites that he started measuring nearly 30 years ago. This is to assess hydrologic changes that have occurred due to climate change and other factors. One note for listeners. In this episode, Andy refers to Robert Brooks, a colleague that he worked with for many years. Rob was a professor of geography and a renowned wetland expert at Penn State for nearly four decades. Rob died in 2021. I'd like to welcome Andy Cole to Growing Impact. Thanks, Kevin. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm a wetland ecologist over in the Department of Landscape Architecture, and I like getting my feet wet, but I don't like getting in areas that are too deep. Could you provide some context and background about your current projects? Sure. This actually goes back almost 30 years. When I first came up to Penn State, I was working with the, the late Rob Brooks um, in what was then the Cooperative Wetland Center that became Riparia. And I came up as a research associate, and Rob gave me uh, the opportunity to look at uh, hydrology at a lot of the sites, which ended up at somewhat over 200 sites, I think. And and over time, um, I ended up instrumenting, I actually lost count, but I think it was well over 60 of those sites, plus some additional sites of my own. It was just to try to get some um, sense of the behavior of these particular sites, hydrogeomorphic assessments, so that we could be able to predict behavior of, of a lot of these wetlands just based on sort of where their position in the landscape was and how the water behaved. Um, nobody had ever really done what Rob and I had proposed to do, which was just to try to generate some uh, data on, you know, just basic wetland hydrology. Um, I'm not a hydrologist. I never claimed to be one and, and actually got several hydrologists mad at me for, for what I was doing just because it was classical hydrology. Um, but some of those sites ended up with more than... Uh, I think a 12-year run was maybe 13-year run was the, the longest I had, which is pretty unusual, right? Because most hydrology studies would be, you know, you do a graduate student, you get to maybe three years and you're done. And I had, uh, I had a good run on some of these things. Ultimately, you know, the, it's these were all remote instruments. I mean, they were. This is a lot of this is pre-internet, actually, and um, so I was out visiting them. But you know, they're all um, remote collecting of data, and and I would have to go out and download it on a, at the time an old calculator, um, and things just sort of wore out. Uh, I ended up moving on to the Department of Landscape Architecture, which I've now been at for quite some time, and. and 
and Rob and Mark Perry went in different directions. It just occurred to me fairly recently. I mean, I'm, I'm a wetland ecologist by training, and you know, climate change is becoming more and more a thing. And a lot of these sites are up on the ridges, which and they're headwater sites, right? And so, as we begin to change the climate and rainfall patterns change, both excessively, as you can see in Kentucky, or become much drier. Uh, these headwater systems um, are going to be among the first harbingers of change. And so uh, I, I thought, well, shoot, I've got, you know, some of these sites that I, I knew had a long run of data. Can I find some resources to, you know, to re-instrument them? I put those back in the ground and, and also started taking plant data. You know, I, we had taken plant data back in the day. And so I could, and Rob, one of the things that he was, he did really well is he, put a lot of that data up on uh, the internet on the riparian site. So I, I can go back and I can look at what those sites were, at least the dominance, and and see what I get now to see whether there's been any change and to, you know, watch these over a longer period of time again. I mean, my hope is to keep these things going again for, you know, a good amount of time to, because if there is a change, if there's a signal, I want to be able to see it. Why is it important to revisit this research a decade later? It takes several years, actually, to, to get a, re, a reliable signal, right? And especially on some of these sites that are not groundwater-fed. The groundwater-fed sites, I could I could probably measure that for a couple of years and, and feel very confident how they behave. The ones that are more surface water-fed or a mix of groundwater and surface water behave very differently. And sometimes it takes years to get a proper signal and so um coming back in after that period of time it's going to take us several years to figure out whether there was a change in the signal over time and the same thing happens with the plants it's not an immediate thing um soils will take uh could take a century to change if they do change but the the plants you know they're going to take more than just the next year uh, and as will the hydrology so the whole thing just now the climate change is sort of i mean we knew about it was coming 10 years ago but it's sort of in your face now and it just seemed important to go back onto these sites if i had the opportunity um, and try to keep them get them going again and keep them long term just to see if we could you know we can pick that signal up because if if these things start to dry up or change you know, that's, in my humble opinion, is one of the canaries in the coal mine, if you will, of, of problems that are going to start happening uh, in the Appalachians. And again, you, you see what's going on in Kentucky right now with the flooding. Um, that's the kind of rainfall that we really haven't seen historically and don't want to see. Um, and if that happens on these sites, they are going to change. Where and how did you choose the placement for these instruments? The site selection way back when was um, it was a little bit of a chicken and an egg setting. We were trying to determine how to generate this hydrogeomorphic classification. So at some point, we were making best professional judgment guesses about site selection. And then uh, after you know several years of uh, both the plant and the soil and the water data, we you know we we settled on a pretty good classification system. And so I simply went back to some of these sites that were, um, you know, groundwater fed, a few of them, um, and a mixture of groundwater and surface water and then surface water 
um, I'm trying to trying to get that spread of hydrology that and at sites where I had um, back in the day I had a long run of data trying to sort of you know a mixture of the the HGM classification a mixture of the, the sort of the water source and then just you know resources I had available to go re-instrument them in our classification system we had what we call riparian depressions. These are groundwater fed, basically little bowl shaped seeps that, that um, are found in the landscape adjacent to streams and just sort of pump out water constantly. Because they're groundwater fed, they are less affected by droughts. Uh, I also have some sites that are um, wetlands that are on slopes, also often groundwater fed, but because they're on a sloping system, um, they, you know, they, the gravity will take the water downhill and they, and they don't stay as wet. And they also get some, obviously get some rainfall and so on. All these sites, of course, get rainfall. Um, and then there's the sites that are uh, along, uh, that are affected by uh, flooding. So, right, um, headwater floodplains, main stem floodplains, depending how you identify those. Uh, where their source of water is, might be sort of groundwater fed from the uh, effect of the stream itself moving up, you know, sort of up into the riparian zone, but also those areas that get flooded. Um, we haven't had a really good snow melt flood in quite some time, but, but you know, it's those kind of things where they, they can actually get extremely dry in the summer. And in fact, this summer, I'm sure they are. Uh, uh, I haven't been on the sites in a couple months now, but um, some some years they're under 10 feet of water, and but most years by this time they're you know they're bone dry, and if you don't know what you're looking at, you don't know they're a wetland. To me, the, just one little addition here, one yeah. important aspect to understanding those those floodplain sites is that most people will walk those this time of year and will argue with me that they're even a wetland. Right, and so they these riparian zones, you know, the adjacent rivers and streams are important in a lot of ways. Um, buffers, for example, for keeping stuff out of the streams, but they are also important of their own, and they are a type of wetland that naturally dries out. You know, those trees don't germinate underwater, right? Those those settings have to be dry for the trees to germinate and then they they are adapted to the occasional deep flood and they are wetland sites but this time of year you know we are in august this time of year they are going to be very dry how can this information be valuable for a guy who likes getting his feet wet it just it just has value in and of itself right these are some of the more interesting ecological sites i've ever been on but they are also to me especially i'm going to give you another example the riparian depressions especially the ones up on the first and second order streams i have long believed that a lot of the chemistry that occurs in those streams is influenced greatly by the output of those riparian depressions being organic matter and all sorts of stuff into the stream not, not to mention the base flow itself right again just naturally this time of year stream flow is low but these riparian depressions because they're groundwater fed keep that stream full or at least flowing, right? So um, if you're a fan, for example, of um, trout fishing and, and, and especially brook trout, again, I've never tested this, but I've sort of come to the belief that um, a lot of these streams that are trout streams are that way and a lot of the chemistry is that way because of these apparent uh, depressions. When you do have all this information the, from the, the historical data and the stuff moving forward, 
who can benefit from the information that you plan to collect and then uh, share out? You know, the folks that that manage these sites, the, you know, the, the for those that are working in the streams, right? You know, Fish and Boat Commission, of course, in the state and federal level, wetlands are still protected. Now, maybe a little less so than I would prefer, but um, what we've been able to show is that some of these sites that people may not in the past have thought of as wetlands are now actually classified as wetlands and get that protection. And again, on those riparian zones, whether it's headwater or main stem, um, keeping those riparian zones protected uh, allows for a lot of benefits, not, not the least of which is helping Pennsylvania, you know, meet their Chesapeake Bay goals, right? And whether it's a wetland or just, just I put that in quotes, or just a riparian forest, it is, um, you know, it's pretty important. So these, I think this data has, what Rob put together over the years and, and what this little bit, you know, that I'm following up on has really helped inform the state and federal managers that have to deal with with, uh, with wetland protection and giving them additional information on the benefits and, and why we need to work to keep these sites, even if they're small, which a lot of these sites actually are they're pretty small. Do you uh, anticipate or have you seen this data being used by other researchers, maybe in other studies to progress to forward their um, their work? Right. So the yeah, the hydrology data. Uh, um, has been the data itself has not been used, but the approach has been used to help uh, in other areas develop their hydrogeomorphic assessments. Um, and, and again, the um, the state uh, DEP, Pennsylvania DEP, and uh, the federal EPA have um, used what Rob and his group over the years have put together to help their plan and how they assess wetlands in, in the eastern United States. So it, it really has been. And it's sort of behind the scenes, but it's been a real big benefit, I think, to a lot of folks. Do you have any future plans for this? Any ideas where this might go and might uh, where the data might be used or how you might progress in this uh, in the project? Sure. Again, again, before I retire, I really would like to see whether whether those riparian depressions actually do what I think they do. Um, and, and so it, it's not just me. I mean, I'm, I'm a plant and water guy and I need help with uh, the soils and, and critters, um, especially in stream and adjacent. So I, I would like to, to, to take, once I get some of the baseline data over the next couple of years, I'd like to bring some more folks in, especially soil scientists and the folks that work in the streams, because I really want to make see if there's that whether I'm making this up or whether it's really true, how much those uh, you know, those groundwater seeps actually do impact those headwater streams. That's where I'd like to take this. Thank you, Andy, for spending time on Growing Impact and talking about your research. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, just anybody who's interested in this, I'm more than happy to answer any, any emails. I am cac13 at psu.edu. And, you can always get me to talk about wetlands. Happy to do it. You've been listening to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. I've been your host, Kevin Sliman. To learn more about IEE and to hear previous episodes of Growing Impact, please visit iee.psu.edu. This has been Season 3, Episode 2. Thank you for listening.